Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Today we are drawing a four-part series on the book of Haggai to a close. I hope it has been encouraging to you. We have called this series a focus on restoration because the people of God in the book of Haggai had a job to do. They had left sitting only remotely partially done for about 16 years. And Haggai comes along, along with Zechariah, and encourages the people to get back to work. And we're thinking about the, the speeches that Haggai made throughout that brief book, just two chapters long, that motivated the people back to action. How do you do that? Three weeks ago, we noticed the 16 years, the fact there was still work to do. And Haggai simply gave them that assessment. Here's what needs to be done and reminded them that God was with them if they would do that. And then two weeks ago, we took the time to notice that God's presence is a great motivating factor as we seek to be faithful to him. His, his presence can be a factor in a negative way, as, as in we're afraid not to do what he says. His, his presence can be a motivating factor in a positive way because we know he's with us. And then his presence is a motivating factor in an eternal sense because if we're faithful, we're going to be with him forever. And then last week, Tyler reminded us of the fact that Haggai taught the people or told the people about God's glory. And all of this is about God's glory and at making sure that what we do, what is done in his name, brings him glory. But Haggai came to the realization that there was more yet to do. He made three great speeches so far. Some of them short, some of them of some length, but not all that long. But the, the, the people still were trying to figure out what exactly to do and how do we keep that going. And Haggai had to come to the realization of one principle of leadership, one principle of, of life, really, that we need to always remember, and that is that restoration is ongoing. We live in a society that doesn't like this idea of something being ongoing, that, that we can't just do something once and it be done. We're an instant society. We like it to be done. And Haggai had given three speeches. Isn't that enough? But there was still more work to do. Haggai needed to remind them of more work to be done. And so this lesson this morning, while it's sort of the, the landing point of this series, is really meant to be a launching pad for our lives. Because what Haggai needed to do was to remind the people that this process, while actually building the temple, that's what they were doing, would have an ending point. In other words, it would be done at some point. That the process of restoration is something that is continual, it's constant, or to use our word, it's ongoing. As I said, we live in a society that doesn't like that. We like the big event, right? I mean, we like to go to some huge thing and maybe that'll kind of get us through to the next huge thing when being faithful to God is just a day 
by day by day, really moment by moment by moment process. And while it's fine to have certain bigger things that kind of motivate us in, in certain aspects of our Christian life, we need to understand this process of, of restoration is an ongoing thing. It's a continual thing. And so what I want to do this morning is just two things. I want us to take a few moments, in fact, most of our time, and examine the text we read together a few minutes ago that Reese read for us from Haggai chapter 2. We'll spend more of our time just examining that text. But then once we have a grasp on what that text from Haggai 2 means, I want us to close by making three points of application for all these years later in our lives. So let's spend some time with an examination of the text. And you may be thankful for that because when Reese read the scripture a few minutes ago, you may have thought, what? in the world is that talking about? It is a strange passage in our ears. When we hear that, in fact, Mary Carolyn looked at me and said, what does that mean? And I said, that's what I preach about. That's why I get paid to do this. It's to try to help with these things. It is a strange passage in our hearing. All this stuff about meats and stew and bread and what in the world is going on? I want you to know to remember one important fact That's obvious, but needs to be brought out a couple of times. And that is we're dealing with a time period of the Old Testament. And how often in the Old Testament do you have that emphasis on the chasm of difference between holy things and defiled things? That's a constant in the Old Testament. If you don't believe me, read through the book of Leviticus. While there's dozens of laws in that book, so many of those laws have to do with holy things or defiled or unholy things. And that's what's brought back up here by Haggai. Just walk through this text with me in sort of an examinating way. In verse 12 of Haggai chapter 2, God told Haggai to ask the priest this question. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, that fold in his garment, If he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Now, you you and I read that and we think, what in the world? Why is that even a question? Why is it a problem? Until we remember that emphasis on holiness and defilement. And remember, this was being asked of the priests. They had to know what keeps things holy or what is holy. What could defile something? And so Haggai puts before them this sort of odd question. If you're carrying meat presumably, to be offered in a sacrifice, and you're carrying that in the fold of your garment, but your garment just happens to to rub by, maybe on a table, a piece of bread or something, does that bread then become unholy or defiled? Now, to us, that's not a problem. But if you were a priest in the Old Testament, you needed to know this stuff. And they rightly answer, no. That would not make that bread or that stew or whatever that it touches unholy or defiled. But then Haggai follows that up with a much more straightforward question for them. Notice verse 13. If someone who is unclean, my contact with a dead body, touches any of these, that is the bread or the stew or whatever, if, if, if that person touches any of these, does it then become unclean? Now, I said this is more of a straightforward question because this is basically addressed almost directly in the Old Testament law. Way back in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 said, whoever touches a dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And later in Numbers chapter 19, down in verse 22, the law said, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean till evening. And sandwiched between those two laws 
was the reminder that someone who would do that was to be cut off from the people for a time until a certain time had passed and they were holy again. And so Haggai asked this question, again, is strange to us, but was very straightforward. Here is something from the law. Does that then become unclean? And the priest rightly answered, yes, it, it would become unclean. And you and I are still going, who cares? Why is Adam preaching on a text about garments touching bread and stew and stuff? It's because of what Haggai does next. Notice how he turns the table on them in verse 14. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Haggai, God through Haggai, is trying to tell the people. The priests have the right answers. They know the law inside and out. These little minutiae of the law. This would not be uh, unclean. This would be unclean. But look at the people. And they are not living up to that law. They're not living holy lives. They may have the minutiae down. But they're not living up to the standard of the word of God. And, And you stop and think about the context of this book. And you begin to maybe understand why. Go all the way back to how we set up the series three weeks ago. The people have been in captivity for 70 years. And now they've come back to Jerusalem. While, again, not to rehash that first sermon, but 16 years have passed. While that's happened, they've begun to fall back into, if nothing else, sort of complacency and apathy. And they're not living up to the full, dedicated standard of the Word of God. You've probably heard the old statement before. You can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. That's what's happening. They're beginning to fall back into just what they know, just what's normal and what's regular. Instead of pressing onward and being faithful, not just to the the little minutia the priests had to follow, but the true, full holiness of the word of God. They weren't living up to that standard. That's what's going on here. And so in the verses that follow that go beyond our scripture reading, God then begins to give them what they need to do about it. In fact, twice he would tell them once in verse 18, 15 and once in verse 18 to consider from this day onward. By the way, literally, that phrase could be translated, put your mind on the day above or put your uh, put your mind on the day beyond what Haggai was trying to get the people to do was to look beyond just their normal day-to-day, day-in, day-out lives and actually think further, actually think higher than they had before. Think about holiness. Think about the things of God. Think about what He requires constantly, not just go through life, do what you want to do, do what's comfortable, do what's... That's what He's trying to get them to see. And then to do that, God takes them On a couple of trips. The first thing God does. Is take them on a journey. Through history. Notice what's said beginning in verse 15. Before stone was placed upon stone. In the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? But before you got back to work. How were things going? And just in case they had forgotten. He reminds them. That they were only profiting. Or only being able to harvest just a small amount. A small portion. Of what they thought they might. And so down in verse 17, God reminds him he was the reason why I struck you, he said. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. But what happened? Yet you did not turn to me 
declares the Lord. How often in the Old Testament law, you might think of Deuteronomy 28, you might think of other places, because it's more than once, where God had told these people's ancestors, their forefathers, basically, if you are faithful to me, you're not going to believe how good you're going to have it. I'm paraphrasing big time, but that's basically what he said. Your crops are going to produce amazingly. You're going to be able to put armies to flight, basically, without even thinking about it. But he also gave the opposite, did he not? He reminded them over and over, if you're not faithful, the exact opposite is going to happen. You might plant a field and you might get something from it, but nothing like you would have. Armies are going to be able to overcome you because you have been faithful. And now he's reminding them, that's why you have not been able to harvest what you should have harvested. You've gotten some, but you haven't gotten everything. Why? Because you're falling back into the way things were before. It's an amazing journey through history because they should have known this for generation after generation. And because if any generation should have known it, it's the one that just came out of captivity and had seen the punishment of God, if he pleased, to its extreme sense by having to go there for all those decades, seven decades, in fact. But the bigger point is, if they fall back into that same pattern again, why should they expect any different result? They would struggle. If they weren't faithful. So God takes them on a journey through history. But God is always gracious. And so he also. Gives a promise of a blessing. Notice what's said. In verses 18 through 20. Consider from this day onward. Again put your mind on things. On the day above. From the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. Put your mind on. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Do you see it? They had gotten some. But God says, if you get back to what you're doing, you're going to see grace. You're going to see a blessing. A friend of mine, Neil Ritchie, summarized that passage with these words. He said, the foundation of God's house was complete and it was time to finish construction. With their repentance, demonstrating by getting back to work, came a blessing. God says, before you even complete the construction, I'm going to bless you. Before you've harvested your crops, I'm going to bless you. Before you take your baskets to pick your grapes, figs, pomegranates, and olives, I'm going to bless you. Because they were listening to Haggai and Zechariah, because they were seeing that, they were going to see the blessing of God. All they had to do was get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing. But go back to that phrase that's found in verse 15 and verse 18. Consider from this day onward. God was saying to the people through Haggai that this is a new start, but it was something that had to be ongoing from this day onward. Not just on this day, but consider from this day onward. They had a chance to repent. They had a chance to see God's blessings flow from his gracious hand. But they were also being told by the prophet to stay in the will of God. To remain faithful to not just the building of the temple, but to the entirety of the law of God and to never go back to those ways, not just of idolatry, but even back to the ways of laziness or apathy and for certain not ways of unholiness or defilement. Now, there are other things found in those verses. And I understand that. But that's a simple examination of the argument that Haggai is making. 
and the motivation that he's giving. That's an examination of the text. And I hope you can at least see that the gist of what's going on here. While some of the phrases may be weird and some of the arguments may be strange to us, I hope we can see the argument. This is something where God is wanting to bless His people, but they had to stay faithful. They needed constant restoration back to the law of God, the will of God, the work of God. With that in mind then, let's turn to us. 2,500 years later, and though I'm not that close to being done, I just want to preach from down here some more. 2,500 years later, is there anything that passage can mean? Oh, there's a lot. But I want to share with you three that I think our religious world and even us individually need to constantly keep in mind. Number one, a first application is that the New Testament church is in need of constant restoration. Now, for something to be restored, that implies a few things. That's a term we haven't really defined through this whole series, and I, I did that intensely. I kind of wanted to save it for the end. A restoration reply, implies excuse me, that there is an original, that there's something worth restoring. There's some people in here who like to restore old cars or restore antique furniture, for example. If you're going to restore a piece of antique furniture, you don't just paint it any color, do you? You think about what color stains or what color paints did they actually have back then that they might have used on this particular piece of furniture. In other words, you, you research and think about what actually would have been true of this piece of furniture. You're going to restore a car. You don't just put anything on that car. You try to figure out what kind of engine would it have had. Do they still even make those parts? What, what kind of fabric would have been on the, the, the steering wheel and the seats? And Can I find that type of fabric? Because I want this to be exactly as much as possible what it would have looked like when it was made, but now sitting in a garage all these years later. Folks, that's what's needed in the church. If someone wants to put the name church on an organization. Our job is not to make it what we want to make it. Our job is to go back to the pattern of the church that Jesus founded and restore it. That's our job. And that should be the job of any group that would put the name church on a building. Or on letterhead. Or on a website. That implies there's a pattern to be followed. And oh, is there ever. Now, are there certain things left up to our judgment? Of course there are. For example, Jesus told his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, that implies something. There's a gospel to be preached, which means if we're going to be his followers, that's the message we preach. But you've heard the illustration many times before. He didn't say how to go. And aren't you thankful? I don't want to ride a mule. I don't want to walk to the other side of the world. But I better be going. And I better be sticking to the proclamation of the gospel. Any group that would say I am a church or this is a church. Needs to understand. That Jesus promised to build his church. Matthew 16 verse 18. They need to understand that Jesus shed his blood to purchase the church. Acts chapter 20. They need to understand that Jesus still rules and reigns as the head of the body, which is his church. Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 both tell us that. If those things are true, 
And folks, our job is to restore that. And I don't care what the name on the sign is. If you propose to be a church, that's your job. The New Testament church is in need of constant restoration. But may I bring it a little more closely to home? Because the second application is our local congregation, Ninth Avenue, is in need of constant restoration. We do so many things well. This isn't meant to be a, you know, blast us. We do so many things well. We do a lot of things so well. We read through the pages of Scripture and we see those things we're supposed to be doing and we, we strive to do those things and we follow the pattern for, for worship. We follow the pattern for the plan of salvation. We follow the, the pattern for the organization of the church. Our elders are in the process right now evaluating names for deacons and we're going to study that, Lord willing, next Sunday morning and what exactly that means. And we, we do those things and we should be thankful for that. And in a, a right sense, we should be proud of that when we see something in scripture and we're following that but our job as ninth avenue are you listening our job as ninth avenue is not done until we have fully restored everything about the new testament church in action in attitude in organization and in worship and that's true of all of us And it's why we keep preaching the same sermons over and over because there's a world out there that doesn't understand it and there's a generation coming up that needs to hear it. We can do all the actions right and not have restored anything. Are we forgiving? Does the New Testament not command us to be people who forgive? Do we respect, obey our leaders, our elders? Does the New Testament church, New Testament, excuse me, not tell us as his people to do that? Does the New Testament church, excuse me, does the New Testament not tell the church to let our speech always be with grace and season with salt? Not let it be with grace seasoned with salt when I'm talking to Christians. When I'm talking about politicians on Facebook, I can say whatever I want to say. We have the truth as far as worship goes. May I ask, do we have the spirit and the truth? You see, it is constant There is a constant need to look at the pattern of the New Testament. And I'm not afraid to use that word pattern. And say, here is what Christ laid down for his church. And we, under the oversight of our elders, and we as a family, are we seeking to restore every last aspect of that? Or am I just seeking for the church to be what it was when I was a kid? Or the church of 50 years ago? Or the church of a hundred years ago. Folks, our job is not to make the church the church of the 40s or the 50s or the 90s or the 2000s. Our job is to make this congregation the church of the New Testament. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And it's about time all of us got back in the mindset of that old restoration principle that we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and we're going to be silent where the Bible is silent and we're going to call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways because that's our job if we're going to have the word church as who we are. But may I get even more personal? Because application number three 
is that individual Christians are in need of constant restoration. I've been a Christian now for about 28 years. Some of you go, well, you're just new in this. <laughs> I understand. I, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. We have people who've been a Christian for just a couple of weeks. We have some of you who have been Christians for decades. However long you've been a Christian, praise God for every day of that. But the older I get, and the more I look at the New Testament, the more I realize I'm in need of constant restoration. Because there are so many things in my life every day that I see I'm lacking or I'm not improving upon or I'm not growing in or I need to cast off more and run away from because I am not a finished product. The old saying, I'm not what I used to be, but praise God, I'm not all I'm going to be. And the moment I begin to think I've got this all figured out, I had better be utterly careful. Because it's a dangerous road to go down. And it's not to say we walk through life just beating ourselves up because because we do things wrong. That's, that's not it at all. But it's the realization that I'm not a finished product. That whole old word of sanctification, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Am I constantly seeing there are things that I need Christ to restore in my life? That I need Christ to bring uh, under His headship, under His lordship. And am I willing to make those changes? Not just am I willing to make enough changes where I feel comfortable. That's not this at all. Am I willing to make the changes even that are hard so that I am constantly saying I'm drawing closer to Him each and every day? Individual Christians are in need of constant restoration. Let me ask a question. We've stayed Haggai now for four weeks, and we hadn't really scratched the surface of what's there. It's an amazing book, and I put some on Facebook last night about how I've just grown to love this little two-chapter book. I, I, I love it. But let me ask, what's, what's the rest of the story? Haggai comes along and gives these four speeches, and there's a few more verses we didn't even study in the series. He gives these speeches, and Zechariah comes along where he's studying his book, and, and he, he gives some speeches as well and motivates the people as well. What, what, what happened? We began this series back in the book of Ezra. In fact, Tower took us back there again last Sunday morning to remind us of that. Where the people had come back from captivity, or some of the people had come back from captivity. And how you see at the beginning of Ezra chapter 5 that Haggai and Zechariah come along and motivate the people. But then what happened? Well, I messed up on the screens. It should say Ezra chapter 5 and 6. Because in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 15, you read the beautiful words... That this house of the Lord was completed. Through all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of pressing against the work, through the work of these prophets, but also just through the willingness of the people, they finally finished rebuilding the temple. And oh, how I love Ezra six sixteen, which tells us that when it was done, this people celebrated the finishing of this house with joy. May I close this series by saying this. When we collectively, and when each of us individually, are constantly restoring what God would have for us collectively, and me and you individually to do, there will be joy. Because we will know we're doing the will of God 
And we will know we're working together to be better. And we will know that what we are doing is following what God wants done. And isn't that where joy is found? In His presence is the fullness of joy. Let me ask a sobering question. And then I promise I'll turn positive. (laughs) Here's the sobering question. Why in so many religious institutions, churches, denominations, which we are not, but denominational groups, why is there so much infighting so often? Oh, there's countless answers to that. I know I'm reducing it down to a couple of things. But may I suggest to you one reason? It's because there are too many people in those groups who want the church to look like what they want it to look like. And since I want it to look like A, and you want it to look like B, we can't agree on A and B, and so we just decide to fuss and fight and holler and get mad at each other and write each other up on Facebook and send anonymous emails and text messages in the middle of the night and everything else, just make each other mad and get mad at each other. And boy, don't people want to become a part of that. When all the while, here's the answer. There may be certain things that I see in Scripture and I go, I really don't understand why God wanted it that way. (laughs) I may not fully understand it. But when I look at it and say, if God said it, that's what I'm going to try to restore. That's what I'm going to try to do. And if each one of us would do the same thing, will there be disagreements at times? Sure, there'll be some disagreements about how to do certain things or why to do certain things. But folks, there'll be joy. There'll be joy because we're seeking out the plan of God and putting that as the foundation instead of what I want and my comfort as what I want. I want a life filled with joy, don't you? Not every day is happy, but every day can be filled with joy. And one way to do that is to focus constantly on restoration. Restoring the principles of the New Testament church collectively and being humble enough to say, I'm not there yet. But if it's in here, I'm going to confess it to God. And I'm going to get better. And when I know that you're doing that and you're doing that and you're doing that, We're going to encourage each other. And oh, how there will be joy. This morning, the pattern of the New Testament is clear. That one must hear the word of God and believe it. That one must turn from sin. We call that repentance. That one must confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of their life. And the New Testament makes it clear that one must be baptized, immersed in water, for the forgiveness of his or her sins. That's what the New Testament teaches, so that's what we teach. That's how one becomes a Christian. And maybe this morning you're here and you've never done that before. Or maybe this morning as a Christian you're here, but there's something in your life that needs restore. It needs to go back to the pattern of the New Testament. And maybe this morning you need prayers for encouragement or for forgiveness. When one is restored, there's joy. And I can't think of anything that would happen today that would give us more joy than if you would respond as to go be standing and sing to encourage you.